The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Savage Actual Podcast. I'm one of two hosts, Jason Lilly, Pryor, Marine Raider. And my co-host over here in the other part of the screen is... What's up, guys? I'm Patrick Maltrop. I am a former Navy SWIC and former Marine as well. And today I have a Recondo Raider brother that I had the luxury of uh, standing next to or standing under, I should say, you tall bastard. And uh, known for almost 16 years now, but uh, prior Marine, 0311, on over to the Recondo 321 side, then retired uh, over at Marsoc as a Raider, uh, got out in 2021. So we are super stoked to have you aboard, man. Welcome to the show, brother. How you doing? Doing good. Doing real good, man. And I appreciate you guys having me on here. And hey, don't hold it against me for being big. You know, it's just, I come from peasant <laughs> stock. You know, the problem is I was built to pull plow carts. There's just no more plow carts. So, uh, you know, belt, belt and machine guns were my plow cart of this uh, generation. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. So, uh, how's the weather up in fucking D city, man, up in Detroit, man? Oh man, you know, surprisingly there's no snow on the ground. I mean, it's, it's like 28 degrees outside right now. And everyone I know talks to me, they're like, man, why would you move to Detroit? Uh, that place is a shithole. And I'm like, what? well, one, first of all, it, where there's, where there's a chaos, there's opportunity. But second, you know, <laughs> who cares? It, 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 it's cold outside. I get it. It's cold. So you put on a jacket, you pull up your bootstraps, and you get on with your day. Like that's not a yeah. that shouldn't be a problem, especially if you're, you know, if you're a hitter. You then you you just hit your way through it. Yeah, drop forward, man. Drop forward. Suck it up. Here's yeah. straw. Exactly. Yeah. Is that? Are you from uh, th- that area originally? No, no. So originally, I uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a. Uh, kind of, I don't know, like a city called Hacienda Heights. I, I was basically, I was on the corner of like City of Industry, Hacienda Heights, and La Puente, like that, that area around there. So really, you know, it, it was a different, it was a different scenario, you know, like uh, I, was, I was probably one of the only white guys I knew growing up, but it was, it was good. It, it taught me how to adapt and how to be kind of a chameleon and work my way into those, uh, those networks. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, brother. California to Detroit. Wow. Yeah, well, my wife, uh, her family's from, uh, and I don't live, you know, disclaimer, I don't really live in downtown Detroit, right? I live in Rochester, which is, you know, a quaint little suburb northwest of Detroit. You know, we got all the niceties. It's uh, We have, you know, Lululemons and Whole Foods and Lifetime Fitnesses. And, uh, you know, I married a Gentile, so she likes the finer things and, uh, you know, Detroit property was just not in the cards, even though I, I, I tried to sell her on it. He's like, look at this house. You get like 4,000 square feet for 250,000. She's like, not a friggin' chance, you know? So, uh, so She's now like, I'm yeah, uh, for selling meth. No, thanks. Yeah. 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 And you know, honestly, it's like, I don't even, 
I don't even know where my house key is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's just, it's really nice. There's like deer will walk through my yard. And I mean, when I was buying the place out here, my my real estate agent said, you know, hey, it's only like a half acre plot. I don't know if that's going to be enough for you. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm from California. You know, like I, I got yeah, this place. Dude. One, I bought this place for the same price. I bought a two bedroom condo in California. And two, like I, like I could probably, you know, I could probably lay flat and touch my other neighbor's house for where I was living at before. So, you know, the, the fact that I'm yeah. out here and I, I can like run around in the yard and chase the kid around and have bonfires in the backyard. I mean, my homeowner's association's rules were one page. And it's like, don't discharge firearms and no air bows and arrows. <laughs> so I was like, all right, sounds good. I, I think I could do that. They didn't like, say anything about this. Is it a struggle? Is it a struggle to follow those rules? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, you know, every once in a while, you, you, you know, it's it's always good to reset the baseline. You're like all the neighbors, you know, they're it's a gentile little neighborhood. I'm in here, you know, like lawyers, doctors. You know, if I just went out and like let off a burst of uh, <laughs> a burst of M4 in the middle of the night, they'd probably trip out. But uh, yeah, you know, one thing about this place, it's really a really gun friendly man i mean i got i got a buddy up the road for me he's got his own range and he has his ffl and i don't know what he he's got everything together and he he has like machine guns the whole nine he's like hey you want to shoot machine guns i'm like dude like where where do you have that in the u.s yeah i mean you go to california if you fire you fire a shot a shot up in the air and you got like a copter and the swat team in route like within minutes so it's just a different it's 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 a slower way of life plus there's no property tags here for 100 disabled veterans so I mean, like my retirement disability checks covers the the baselines, and and then if I want to work, I can. And yeah, that that it's awesome, man. I I, I can't do that in California, or I could. Yeah, for well, damn sure. That's man. awesome. So current day in uh, Detroit, you know, I know you got a wife, you got some kids, brother. Uh, let's let's back it up, dude, for this podcast, man. Like uh, as you know, this podcast is definitely centered around. Uh, more about the man in the uniform, not so much the uniform, but obviously they uh, they blend together. Yeah, and uh, there's some identities with both. So let's back it up, dude. Let's talk us into uh, young fucking Brian Jacklin, man. So like, tell us, how, you know, <laughs> cool. Like, I was fucking growing up in Hacienda, brother. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a community favorite that brews craft ale from the finest ingredients. Find them on Instagram at Iron Fire Brewing, or better yet, swing by their brewery on Zevo Drive in Temecula. Iron Fire Brewing, all killer, no filler. Well, young Brian, young Brian, much like older Brian into my 30s, I would say, was a complete shit show. So I, I grew up in, uh, like I said, I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, and I, you know, was always in trouble. I was always... I don't know how to say it. Like, look, you know, we, we did all the things we shouldn't be doing when, at that age. So I got in a lot of trouble. I ended up having to move out to Corona, California with my grandma, uh, so which is in like the river, Riverside area. And, uh, yeah. and you know, so she, li- she lived in the trailer park outside of Corona. I, I moved in with her. But, you know, honestly, it was, a, it was really good for me in my development because, you know, where I was living at in L.A., I mean, it was, you know, it was it was dangerous. It, it, it's just the way it was. I mean, I was in fights all the time and uh, – and it got to a point where, you know, what what, what kind of sent me, you know, where I had to move out was that, I, you know, I had some some death threats and because uh, I was I was in with the wrong people doing the wrong things, you know. So I got involved in some things I shouldn't have got involved with. And then the next thing I know, 
I got people gunning for me. So it was time to skip town. And, you know, my grandma happened to be over at the house one night, uh, having dinner with my parents. And I came home and I was, you know, I got busted up. You know, I got jumped. And, uh, and she's like, you know, so I walked in and, you know, they had some questions. So, you know, if I couldn't really avoid it, I had to answer some questions. And that was it. She's like, pack your shit. You're moving in with me. I'm not going to hear anything else about it. And I moved out there. And I mean, really what it did was it allowed me to like be a kid, you know, to, to just, I don't know, focus on school and, you know, I mean, like going to the movies or, you know, things that today were like, you know, you don't think about the gravity of those things as a kid, like being able to be a kid and not have to worry about someone like, you know, walking out of the movie theater with your girlfriend and someone just stopping the shit out of you because like they caught you, you know, you don't have, what, what, it was, what time frame was this? What year, like what years were this? This was, I mean, uh, I came into high school in 96, 97 time frame, And uh, I think okay. it was probably like 98, something like that. So I moved out there when I was 15. You know, my dad actually, uh, my, my dad had, can- he caught cancer when I was 13 and uh, died when I was 15. So it was a tumultuous Damn. time, man. You know, I didn't have a really good uh, relationship at home uh, with my mom. We, you know, we had pretty uh confrontational relationship between us so when i moved away it really it just kind of opened some doors and allowed you know I, I got focused i started going to well before i got focused i got arrested so that was that was kind of like the last straw like my grandma my, my grandma brought me in and she put me up and you know she's really taking care of me and putting herself out there for me and i think within like two weeks of being there i got i got arrested for possession and had to do like a summer of community service you know uh washing cop cars and you know putting uh wheelchairs back at hospitals paying a fine and she was like so disappointed in me and, and it really it broke her heart it, it kind of made me realize that i was you know look something had to change i couldn't be doing the same stuff i was doing back in la so um so yeah i, I changed i changed up and then started playing football i played football in la but you know i wasn't really any good at it uh and then i tried to play it out in corona and they were, they were like a state champion school so i just got the shit kicked out of me and you know i was like <laughs> I was like 180 pounds, and anyone who knows me knows that like catching footballs is not my jam. So, uh, like I could tackle, but you know, being a 180 pound defensive end uh, against you know these guys were on like you know American they're a bunch of American Muscle Mexican supplements. You know what I'm saying? And, and they were <laughs> so they were like 260 pounds. Just there's it wasn't happening. So I, I broke my wrist playing football, and I said uh, this ain't for me. And I was in auto. I was in auto shop with with some guys, and they were on the wrestling team. So they said, "Hey, you know, you should you should come do that." And I was like, "Wrestling? Well, that's dude. That's no no way, man. What? Wear those singlets and and like wrestle roll around, around with sweat, other dudes? Yeah, roll around with sweaty guys. Like, I don't think so. That's 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 not for me. Uh, but I will say, you know, that just like just like most things in my life, it all started with the challenge. You know, so they like, oh, you won't do it. You don't got the guts." And I said. I'll be there, you know, this afternoon, whatever. So I go in there and I mean, probably one of the hardest things I had ever done in my life to that point. I mean, just, you know, four hours or whatever it was, just really getting put through the ringer. And we had a coach, his name was Coach Campbell. And this guy was, <clears throat> I mean, he was a phenomenal man. He was he was like 45 years old, but he, he, he could just Iron Man wrestle the entire squad and just beat all of us like, like we weren't even to challenge. And we had some like national contenders on our team. So... So I uh, so I picked up with them, and I think what that really did was it gave me like a sense of you know duty, duty being that like I had to show up on time where I'm supposed to be. I had to be like bright eyed, bushy tailed, and have my stuff to get shit get shit together. 
and uh, you know, I had to make weight. I had to do all those, all the things. You know, it gave me like requirements that I had to hit, and uh, you know, so and, and when you're on the when you're on the mat, when you're at a dual meet is what they call it, you know. So everyone wrestles their own individual weight, but it's all collected for a, a, a team a team score. You know, your score matters. And a lot of times as I was like one of the, you know, I started off at 171s and I was 189s and 215s and heavyweights as I moved up. And, you know, in those later stages, it's, you know, you know that if you're, if you're having a bad day on that dual meet, uh, you know, it's up to you. Like, you, you know, you need to pin someone to get that six points. You can't just get like, you know, I think it was six points been like a coon's age since I was a wrestler, but you know, you had, you had, you knew you had to make the point. So you, my point being that I had to have responsibility. I had to take ownership of my actions. And I mean, in the amount of physical and mental strain that they put you through in those kind of, in that, in that curriculum of that program, uh, it really set the stages for the rest of my life. I mean, it, it was that, that kind of adversity having gone through that, like once I like the Marine Corps was a joke. I mean, the boot camp I went there, it was, it was no big deal. Uh, especially because I mean, if for all those out there who have been through a boot camp, if you showed up in shape, I mean, you're shit Tiffany cufflinks, right? Like you got the guy next to you, he's got man titties and you know, this guy over here is crying. <laughs> I mean, if, if you just show up and, and you're about your shit and you, you just keep your mouth shut, do what they tell you to do and like run fast and lift hard or, you know, whatever it is, I mean, you're, you're a star. So I showed up and, and just breezed through that. And then, you know, later on with reconnaissance and sniper schools and everything else, like, you know, that, that adversity that I had gone through as a child out there in Corona and the rest of the program, or, it was called Centennial High School. But under that wrestling program, that really gave me what I needed to mentally and physically push myself to those new barriers that I never thought I could achieve. And uh, it served me well. Fuck yeah, man. So, you know, you're, you're in school, you graduate. Like, first off, I mean, who, anyone else in your family, were they military, you know, service members at all? <laughs> no. Well, uh, I mean, so I would say, I mean, yes, right. World War II, everyone served. Right, right? So, right, you know, right, my, right. my family served in World War II. But since then, no one that I knew about. And, uh, I mean, I got my, my Uncle Paul, he had served in Vietnam <laughs> as a crew, as a crew chief. So I got to put my dip in. Mm, it's delicious. So, so, but when I joined up, you know, my mom's, you know, so my dad had died. I was my mom's only, only kid, but we, I had four older stepbrothers from my, my dad's previous marriage. And my mom was, you know, adamant that I shouldn't go into the Marine Corps because it was dangerous. And to that, I responded to her. I said, Hey, yeah, mom, what are you talking about? There's no war going on. Like, I'm, I'm just going to like travel. I'm just going to travel the world and have best friend time. Now this is like, uh, this is, I was in a delayed entry program. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I joined in July of 2021. So, but when I joined up, you know, July of 2021, I'm in correction. What am I talking about? 2001. 2001. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, TVI is a motherfucker, right? So, aided, aided by my booze as I'm drinking here. So, I, uh, so when she, she was not a fan and my recruiter came over and she gave him the riot act, but as it turned out, man, <laughs> You know, I was like, look, this, it's not a big deal. I'm going to do four years. I'm going to get like, obviously we came, I came from nothing. We didn't have any money. You know, like everyone talks about like this disparity now, that, you know, all oh, there's white privilege and all this stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe so, but I didn't, I never experienced anything like that because I was poor as the next guy and, you know, never didn't, didn't have any opportunities. So 
I was like, yeah, they're going to give me $80,000 to go to school. So once I do four years, I'll be 22. I'd get out and go to college and figure out what I'll do with my life. Like That sounds like a pretty good fucking deal to me. So I joined up and then I was at boot. I remember being in boot camp and we were uh, at uh, Camp Pendleton doing like the uh, field phase. Yeah. And they, no came, they came, I remember they came in to the squad bay and they're like, the Twin Towers just got hit by airplanes. It's like 50,000 oh, Americans and we're going to fucking war. Like, who's my infantry motherfuckers at? And, you know. <laughs> Holy shit, that happened in boot camp. That's crazy. I, 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 was, I was in boot camp, and I remember it was towards the end of boot camp, and I remember they are like, who's my infantry motherfuckers at? And it was me and, like, three other guys. Because, I mean, who joins the infantry in peacetime? Like, nobody. You know, but I always, I always considered that, like, well, if I <laughs> – yeah, we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm like, look, if I'm going to be a Marine, I want to be a Marine. If I wanted to be – administration or logistics or whatever, then like I would have joined like the air force or hundred fucking percent. Yep. Yeah, like, like, it's, it's hilarious. Cause it's the same exact thing. I know Jason, and I have had the same conversation. I was like, if I'm going to go into the fucking Marine Corps, I'm not, I'm going to go in to be an infantryman. I want to go into fight, carry a fucking weapon, do whatever, you know, I mean, same thing. We all like, we don't really have a good handle on what the fuck actually is happening. But yeah. I was like, my uh, my cousin and I went in at the same time, and he was like a fucking Motor T dude. I'm like, what? What What the fuck is that? He's like, dude, you work on vehicles, and you drive them around. I'm like, that sounds fucking stupid. I am not doing that shit. And yeah, so fucking it, everybody does the it, same it, shit. And, and, you know, I'll give a shout Honestly, I'll give a shout out to, like, everyone who was in infantry. It doesn't. Everyone has to do their part, right? There, it's a machine, and it needs all these different parts to go. And, and as I got older in my Marine Corps experience, uh, you know, I became more aware of, of how critical all those positions are and what they do for operations. And, and I gained uh, a high level of appreciation for them. I mean, I really did, and I still yes. do. But, you know, when I was a young buck and I was coming in, I was like, no, there's only one way for me. And I was like, I want to be a machine gunner. And they're like, you have 120 on your ASVAB, dummy. I'm not dummy, but they're like, hey, you have 120 on your ASVAB. You're not going infantry. You're going to go be intelligence. So it's like, no. <laughs> Is that what I'm like, intel? They, they wanted me to go either intel or NBC. And, and I just told them, I was like, I said, look, I'm going infantry or I'm not joining. And they're like, well, then and they, they kind of like try to bluff me as recruiters will. And I said, fuck you. I'm going to go to the next town over and talk to their recruiting guys then. And they're like, well, well, hold, well, hold on, hold on. Like, let, let me see what we. It's like a car sale. Like, let, let me see what I can do for you. And oh, what do you know? Let me go talk to my manager. Yeah, a, a fucking couple hours later, he's like, "Hey, I got you an infantry spot. You're lucky." And I'm like, "I'm not lucky. You're lucky." You know? Yeah. So, so I, uh, so I, yeah. But I, when I went to the infantry, I mean, it was everything I thought it was going to be. I mean, well. It wasn't. It wasn't right. So when I when I showed, I remember when I showed up from from uh, to to my first unit. Well, I was I was with first LAR, and I was like, "All oh, right, guys, hey, we're all we're all Marines here, right? Uh, you know, you're a Marine, I'm a Marine, uh, hoorah!" And they're like, "Shut the fuck up, boot! Get over there and fucking mop those floors and you know, rake the rocks and paint those rocks, and then you know, and first, like, you know, kick them out." That was out in uh, was out in Twenty Nine Palms, right? No, this was at Pendleton. It's over oh, at was uh, it? Camp Florida. Is that Camp Flores? I got I got assigned a weapons company with First LAR, and I got put in a mortar platoon. So so oh, so back in backtracking, I, I was in I was in SOI, and I got I got designated as an O three eleven, 
And which I, you know, I was like, hell yeah, that's 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 awesome. And then at the end of SOY, towards the end, they they pulled a group of us in. They're like, hey, you guys, your GT scores are high enough to be LAV crewmen, so now you're going to be that. And I was like, well, what's what's that? And they're like, no, you know those eight wheel vehicles that you see driving around here. Like you're going to be like a crewman on those things. And I was like, well, I don't want to fuck. I don't want to do that. And they're like, I don't give a fuck what you want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was like, you know, really? like my, my, my introduction to the Marine Corps, like no one cares. You're doing it, or you're you know you're going to pay heavily. So, so and I went to. LAV crewman's school. I crashed the vehicle like three fucking times, but they still passed me. And then <laughs> were you trying to do you just trying to get the fuck out of it? <clears throat> no, not really. I was just a terrible driver. <laughs> like, I don't know, but depth perception or whatever. I uh, I'd be driving along, they have these like serpentine course you have to drive through, and I'd be getting screamed at, and like I'd be like, just because it's such a big vehicle, you don't realize that you're dragging on something. So I'm just like dragging on the side of this uh, of this these berms, like I ripped off a muffler. I, uh, <laughs> you know, you have to do these Holy like things. Shit. You have to you go down these V, these V things. Like I don't know, you have to like break modulate and like go through these these uh, trenches. Right. Right. Uh, well, I didn't get the memo, so I just like just just crashed right into it and like sent my crew over the top. And so you know, they weren't too happy with me, but they still passed me. And I went out to uh, and I went to first LER, and uh, they got assigned me to mortar platoon. And that was an interesting experience, also, because I mean. And if for any of the mortarmen out there, you you know what you guys you guys have the corner market on like spades, cooking, you know, like like, like MRE chefs and uh, and terrorizing your young your young dudes or your boots. So I mean, we'd stop somewhere and I I go dig the mortar dud pit with all my shit on out in Twenty Nine Palms or wherever we were at. And but you know, I learned a little bit about being a mortarman, and uh, and I learned a lot about like what I didn't want out of the Marine Corps. And then that's and that carried over. That, Go ahead. That, that's crazy that you went from 0311 to 0313 to basically what's fucking what's the thing for mortarman? Did you get mortar? Did you get fucking your the mortar MOS? No, no, I I I never got a mortarman MOS. I mean, I got we won the my the team I was assigned to got a, we won the first Marine Division uh, mortar competition, and I got I remember get I got a nam out of it <laughs> as a boot. Oh, so I still have like. So I'm the damn saying I was I, I did it, and, and I remember just the hatred that came from the NCOs because some like PFC had a, a fucking nam, but really like all I did all I did during that competition was like I you just carried everything because you have to do like yeah, a move, yeah, you have yeah. to run like you have to do like a three mile movement and then set up and like shoot or whatever. So it's like okay, Jacqueline, you're carrying all the the, the rounds, the base plate, the the, the bipods, and the tube and your rifle, like move it out. <laughs> but I mean, I was, at that time I was like, I think I was like 240 pounds, you know, like I, I was like 6'4", 240. Shut you, up. You, Jesus Christ. You know? Yeah, I was, I was, I was a big kid. So, and I mean, when you're living in the barracks, the only thing you have to do, the only thing you have to do for yourself is like working out. Right. So I was, I just get, if you don't want, if you stayed in your room, there's going to be some corporals come by and terrorize you. So you just made sure you were never there. So you lived at the gym or if you weren't at the gym, you're like, out of town trying to get in, into some mischief. Yeah. But like you, you stayed in your barracks room as little as possible. So you fucking graduated this Mortimer's course, dude. You come back. So obviously I know you went the recon route, man. So like what did you first hear about recon and what was the, you know, what was the path to that, that title, man? Well, yeah. So I was in, Iraq. we went into Iraq at the tail end of, 
the invasion. So we weren't in like the big push or anything in the invasion. We kind of came in on the aftermath through like Basra yep. and some other, some other cities in the South. And I have no idea what the cities were because when you're a young dude, like no one tells you what's going on. They're just like, just drive here, go there, get a dismount, check that out, whatever it is. So I, I really had no idea what was going on. I just had like my, my M16 and my helmet and my flak jacket and six mags and a frag. Like, and I just knew that in my, in my mop suit. So we, uh, so we were in Iraq and I saw that there was these dudes and they had like, they had long hair and they're all Jack Diesel and tattoos on, you know, sleeved, sleeved up. And I was like, man, who, and they had the cool guy guns and everything. And I was like, man, who are those guys? And, uh, and I remember my, my, my corporal was like, those are recon. Shut the fuck up. Don't go talk to them. I was like, all right, well, <laughs> yeah, no, so, please. Basically what you saw, you saw my fucking unit. We, you probably looked at, right at me because I was fucking first recon at that time. We, you yeah. like probably, I was a driver. You probably looked at me like, damn, those guys are fucking listening. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, Jason's, yeah. Jason's actually like, I hate my fucking life. <laughs> 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 But, but, but you know that, like you know, adversity is is the catalyst for any kind of innovation. I was like, I need to innovate my way out of this fucking unit and get over to some place where I can like have where where free thought and, spe- and speech is, is advocated. Yeah, for the most part, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, so so my my analogy for for the for the Marine Corps infantry is this: it's like eating spoon. You know, you're gonna eat soup with a fork. So if I told you, Jason. Uh, you know that bowl of soup in front of you. Here's a fork, brother. I want you to eat that. Eat that soup. And you're like, yeah, but I got, I got. What are you talking about? I got, a, I got a spoon in my pocket. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. You're gonna eat that goddamn fucking soup with a fork, like I told you to. And just, that just, is it. Told. Yeah, and I mean that was that was the that was like my infantry experience. So I knew. Look, it, nothing against them. You know, great guys. But I, I was just like, I knew it wasn't for me. So, so as soon as I had a chance, and no one was looking, I went and talked to those recon dudes. And I, and I talked to them, and they're like, like, "Whatever, dude." Like, he's like, "Who the fuck are you?" And I'm like, oh, "I'm like, I'm like PFC Jacqueline. I want to come to recon." And they're like, "Yeah, whatever. Uh, I don't think so." And, and I just kept bugging them. I just kept going over and talking to them and trying. I was like a little puppy, man. I kept going and going, and finally, like one of them, this guy Davy Lind, he said, yeah, uh, "I know Davy Lind too." Yeah. So Dave, so Davy Lind was like, "Listen, dude." Here's my number. Give me a call when you get back to the states. We'll get you into a screening and we'll figure it out. But you need to go battalion recon because yep. you know go cut go cut your teeth at the battalion at battalion recon, and then you know then you get pulled in the force when you're when you're worthy. So I was like, I don't care. I just want to go to recon. I don't, like wherever I go, like I'm going. So so when I got back, we're actually on the boat. We're heading back. We went to Guam, and I, I took a recon screening in Guam. Me and a couple of the guys, and all of us failed it. And, and we failed. Like I failed it because, like, dude, you're on you're on a boat. We we're on a troop carrier, so you can't really run. And then you get hit to Guam, and it's like, you know, 150 percent humidity, hot as shit. And uh, yeah, I just I didn't make the runtime because you had to make a 285 PFT or better. And yep. I think I I, I, was, I was shy by like a, you know a couple points. Like I came in whatever it was, like maybe 30 seconds too too long on my runtime. And they're like, nope, standards to standards, man. Like come back. And, uh, and you're coming in on the back end of. Going to war, so you're emaciated. You're fucking tired. You float yeah. home, seasick. Mm-hmm. You're not PTN. You end up in Guam. You're changing environments in a very short amount of time. Dude, your body's like, what the fuck? And then you put your body through this insane level of fucking stress to pass the screener. Of course, you fucking failed. You know? Yeah, 
And but you know, just like anything in life, like you know, adversity is like the best way to prove what you got. You know, so you know, I was down on I was down on my luck when I failed it, and I was like, fuck, man, you know, I failed that shit, and I felt felt sorry for myself for a little bit. But you know, this old mentor of mine, he told me he's like, you know, whenever you fail, like, to give yourself five good minutes to like feel sorry for yourself and kick yourself up about it. And then move the fuck on because no one gives a shit. Like move on and, and do better. So I trained harder. You know, I went, you know, I went back to the States and, and then me and the other guys were training for it. We we trained harder and I just dedicated everything I had to it. And uh and then yeah, we went out for the selection like a month after we got back and I passed it. And, and mind you, like <clears throat> my infantry command was not a fan of me going anywhere. <laughs> They're like, you're not going recon. I was like, I was yeah, like, they, well, they don't right. want to lose. That's when you're a good dude. They don't ever want to lose you. You know, that's I've heard so many stories about, especially in the Marine Corps, so many stories about guys that are in infantry battalions and they just get, you know, they just get the fucking hand when it's they're they're wanting to go do something different. You know, they don't they don't like yeah. that shit. And I'll tell you what, man. You know, and all these things that there were adversity points for me coming up, I remembered them. And so, like, when I became Recon and I became Marsoc later on, whenever I'd have, like, a young guy who'd come up to me with questions, I always did everything I could to make time to answer his questions. And if he was deserving, cool. I, you know, I, I would introduce him to the right people who'd get him into a selection or, or whatever. I mean, because, you know, those guys did it for me, so now it's my responsibility to do it for the next guys. And, and I, always, yep. I always really strive to, to take care of the young dudes who, who were wanting to come over. And... uh yeah, it, it was good. It was good that way. So, I, so my command was not a fan. Luckily, I had an app. I had one advocate. Well, really, two. My my company commander and my first sergeant at uh, at uh, L.A. Light Armor Reconnaissance Battalion. They were both former force guys. It was, it was first sergeant oh, wow. Boya and and, uh, and major. I think it was or captain at the time, Captain Lance Dowd. So those guys, they actually, they, they kind of like bucked the system and they got me and this other guy, Josh uh, Negron, uh, yeah. and some and some others uh, to to get a tryout. And when we when we made it, even though everyone else, you know, the battalion commander, whoever was was a fan of Let Us Go, they advocated for us. And I remember, I still remember first round lawyer said, "Hey boys, you got one shot. You're you're gonna go. If you fail out, like you never get another chance, and you're coming back here, and then we own you." And, and I knew, I, I, I knew that those NCOs were hungry, man. They were hungry for blood because I don't know why it is, man, but, you know, for some reason it's like there's this stigma about doing better for yourself. Like, oh, what, you want to go to a better unit and do better for yourself? Fuck you, pussy. You know, you're you're fucking quitter. And I'm like, I'm not quitting anything. I'm still in the Marine Corps. I just want to do a different job, man. Yeah. And uh, and so when I went to, when I went to recon, uh I mean, as I remember, there's like 85 guys classed up. And by the time we went through like pre-reconnaissance course and then re the reconnaissance course, there was like eight guys who actually made it. Uh, so, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big hurdle in my life to, to get through that. And, and, and as it happened, you know, Josh Negron made it with me. So we've been lifelong yeah. friends ever since. Josh is going to do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great, he's a, he's a great human. And yeah, when I went over to recon, it was like being a boot all over again, man. I, I showed up and I was like, hell yeah, we're all recon guys. I'm like, not you. You're a new guy. Tape the wilds down the floor, take out the trash. So what did you get to what did you get to first recon, dude? I think it was like 
September of 04, something like that. All right. I was, I was still yeah. Oconus. That was still my OIF2 deployment. I didn't come back yet. Yeah. So I, I got assigned under uh, Charlie Company. Uh, I think we're the fourth platoon. Or, I, I can't remember, man. It's been, like I said, the years, you kind of lose some of the details. But I was with Davey Lynn, that same guy who had been advising me on what to do to get to recon. Turned out to be on my platoon sergeant when I got to recon. So we called we called him we called him Papa Bear, and he was like the most knowledgeable. I, to this day, man, he was, he he was the the primary guy who drove me to be the kind of leader that I ended up being. Yes, uh, you know, right or wrong, I took his cues, and, and they all jived with the way I thought about things. And he really taught me a lot. And I did a deployment with him too. We went to Iraq in 05 together. And, uh, you know, we're all around Al Anbar and through, like, Fallujah and doing hits over there. Yeah, how was not, that? Not, how not, was that? Uh, you know, we weren't in the Battle of Fallujah or anything like that. We were, yeah, we, were, sure. like, we did a lot of sniper operations. We did a lot of, like, hits uh, and, and so on. Uh, gotten a few scrapes, but, you know, nothing too crazy, you know. Like, gotten a few firefights. How, how did you feel about... The, how did you feel about the way that recon was employed? Because, I mean, that's a lot of things like it's we, we've heard other guys talk about it. And Jason and I have talked about it. You know, sometimes recon isn't exactly employed in the way that they're supposed to be. How, how did you feel about when you guys were out there? Because um, Anbar was pretty, pretty hot at the time. Of course, Fallujah was. Yeah. I mean, were you guys being employed the way that you were supposed to be? Or were you guys doing like shit outside the outside the lines a little bit? No, I mean, I, I never had any issue with the way we were employed. I mean, we did a lot of we did a lot of sniper ops. I mean, I wasn't a sniper at the time, but I, I'd go in with the guys who were snipers and and be uh, support to their teams and you know hold security and back it up however I could. You know, we dusted a few uh, IED teams and you know we, we did a lot of like like firm based operations. You know, we go in like, hey, here's some money get out we're taking your house for a few days and then we go and raise, raise hell do hits and, and whatever and we captured i mean i, I can't remember the number but it was, i remember it being a lot like we, we captured a, a, a lot of hvis we did a lot of hits captured a lot of people and you know it, it was a great deployment man uh, we the, the the team i had i was in back then uh, really great guys and, and we under davies tutelage i mean we were really shit hot i think we were shit hot and even now we know what i know now we had we had it together pretty well, so pretty well oiled machine, and uh, yeah, I had no complaints about that. But the, the biggest complaint I think that I had was was like the cross unit coordination, and there wasn't. I mean, hey man, there was people all over the place, right? So we, they put us in on like a a sniper op on like route mobile, and we'd be like, you know, we do we go in with a with the grunts and like seven tons, they just do multiple you know multiple stops along the way, and at one of those stops we jump out and we'll we leave behind. Up. Yeah. yeah, we do a leave behind. And so we jump out and go watch to watch some culverts they kept blowing up guys on. And uh and we'd be walking I mean, multiple times. We walk in and I'd be like, I hear voices. We like, you know, we call halt, you know, drop down and listen. And you're hearing these voices. And you see like a cigarette ember go to a guy's face, like, you know, a hundred yards away from you. And you're like, holy shit. And then you're like, and you're so you're getting ready to like kill these guys, and then you realize, like, wait a second, did he just that, that's English. And you're like, holy shit! These guys, these guys are like U.S. forces. So now that's even worse because, like, those you know, the average Marine guy, you know, he doesn't know we're out there. We don't know. He's gonna fight. Yeah, yeah, he's just gonna like he's just gonna open up with his 240 Gulf and 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 
cause chaos. So, you know, we'd like hit the deck and like crawl our asses out of there and then, you know, maneuver. So, guys, you know, so what you're saying is the deconfliction of the battle space at that time was the, the interagency communication was fucking pretty piss poor. <laughs> Yeah, those. Th- uh, I did two deployments to Iraq uh, with, with that same platoon, and I don't. Know, I don't know. Those multiple times, man, where we get lit up by, you know, our own guys, just because you know, yeah, especially yeah. that you know, like we're in Fallujah or wherever, and, and someone would start shooting, you know, and the bullets would go by us, and they'd go hit whoever, you know, there'd be other Marines down the way, and then they just turn around and start shooting back. So now we're in the center, and you're. <laughs> <laughs> you know, crawling your ass out of there. Yeah, dude. So, so, so that happened a few times, and, and definitely, I'd, I'd say that was the biggest, probably the biggest pucker factor. Because you know, I mean, the Fuck Iraqis, yeah. Jesus Christ, the, the the Iraqis could fight, right? They can, they could fight, but as soon as you get the upper hand, they usually break contact. So you know, you you'd overwhelm them with firepower and start maneuvering on them, and they just drop their shit and run. Whereas, like you know, fast forward, you know, five or six years, and you're in Afghanistan. And you're like just murdering the, sh- you know, killing the shit out of all these guys. And you're like, there's no way they're going to keep coming. Like they can't be that dumb. And then you're like, fuck, they're keeping, they're still coming. Like, okay, well, yeah, let, dude. Let, let, yeah. You, you know, it, it was, you know, you had to, you had to respect the tenacity of the Afghans. The Iraqis yes, didn't sir. have the same tenacity. No, they don't. And that's that's through fourteen empires trying to take their country. I did mm-hmm. the research, man. Literally, we were the fourteenth empire to take you know, take whatever it was on their soil and, you know, we're like the rest of them. We failed. Yeah. So, so basically yeah. they're, they're like 14 and 0, man. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, undefeated. <laughs> they, they're undefeated, you know. That's a Jesus fucking good Christ. point, dude. I'm going to make a t-shirt, like Amer- the Afghan flag, 14 and 0. Like, like, yeah. like, what do you, like, what do you got, dude? I mean, truly. They got dude, time I mean, is what it is. We don't. Dude, we would go in in Afghanistan. I mean, we did all of our tours in, in the helm and uh, my personal tours. And I mean, yeah, but we like these young 18 year old kids with like a bedazzled AK 47 and a couple <laughs> magazines are no, absolutely no match for like senior operators with like, you know, ground tactical excellence and as well as all the assets under the US arsenal at our backs. Like, like we just, we decimate them, but they keep coming. So I, you know, my respect, I respect them for that, you know, but I still have no problems killing them because it's just what we do. That's so the you job. got, so that was your, you were talking about your first deployment to Iraq. You came back, you're with first, you're with the first recon at the time. Did you change platoons or what happened when you come back? So I came back from the first deployment and then uh, I got, I got moved into Alpha Company, which was a MU deployment. But under the Dang. same, the same, yeah, the same platoon sergeant, Davy Lynn, was the platoon sergeant on that one as well, and uh, and yeah, we went we went to Iraq again. So we went in the second time, and we were with Third uh, Battalion, First Marines, and we we went in with them and cleared a town called Karma. So mm-hmm. my position in that in that stretch was just basically we were on the Draw Digla Canal. And we just we set up sniper overwatches and, and you know as they were clearing this town and you know again there's you know different breaks and comms because I think everyone's using free cop at the time so I miss hard enough to get get comms within your own platoons with free cop now now try like 
getting on the same timing and everything with the with the infantry units going in. Like, I'm going to back it up one second for our listeners yeah. out there because you know a lot of the listeners most have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Freak hop <laughs> yeah. is an yeah. acronym for frequency hopping. Really, hopping. And you're you're basically in a perfect world synced up with this other the other end. And during that said transmission, the frequencies together, they're hopping at the same time. So that way anyone listening isn't going to be able to pick up what the fuck you're doing. So it's, it's a, a security measure. But with that, it's got to be fucking perfectly executed. And there's a bunch of programs, technology, software, and hardware to make this happen. And it like Murphy strikes always and everywhere, yeah. especially in comms. So they worked, but it didn't work. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and unfortunately in that deployment is actually our first, our first operation out, uh, Davy Lind, our, our beloved platoon sergeant, you know, got his legs blown off, uh, by Fuck. a, by an IED as we're, as we're, you know, driving. And I remember we, we were at this, we took over this firm base and we we're about 15 kilometers out front of the view, uh, securing basically uh, you know, shaping this area for the, for the other, uh, mute guys come in and uh yeah you know we he was like the i think the fifth vehicle back in the stack and he hit like a they hit a land a double stack landmine whatever it was and you know so goes off you know he's missing his legs and you know we, we're, we're patching him up and i remember you know getting on communications and uh there was just nobody, man. You know, we're, I was calling, you know, I was calling out on SATCOM and no one was answering. I was calling, you know, we switched over to HF. No one was answering. We're too far out for VHF communications. Uh, you know, we tried, you know, the, the, uh, TAD nets that we had, no one was flying. So, I mean, in the Iridium, no one was answering on the Iridium phone. I mean, and I mean, the helplessness you feel in that situation with your buddies, you know, this mentor to you is bleeding out and there's nothing, nothing you could do. That's that's going to uh, save him, you know. It's a pretty bad situation to be in, and I. But I do remember, I was sitting there, and you know, and everyone's, you know, everyone's trying to find solutions, but there's none to be had. And I had, and, and it's weird. And I'm gonna get like, you know, universal with you here, but there's some weird shit that goes on, man. You know, I was out there, and I was, and I had no idea what, you know, I was, uh, I was out of ideas, and I got in this voice literally talked to me in my head. And I heard this this male voice was like get on guard and call it in, and I was like, oh, that's shit, that's right, guard. You know, the 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 net that all the aircraft used to not crash into each other. It's like the common air net. So I I dug through our comm book and found the the guard frequency, plugged it in, and you know, in the in the in the open, uh, being in the red, like not encrypted, and I called it in, and and first first call got this, you know, got a. Uh, I think it was an E9 that was over uh, above us. Uh, one of those uh, electronic warfare kind of birds. Oh, oh yeah. But, but basically, they rogered up. Like an uh, AWAC type? I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it just, you know, I called it in and and, and they brought it back up and I, I passed, the, passed the Kazvac 9 line and 15 minutes later, there's a black hook on the deck and we got him out of there and, and he's still alive today, you know? So, it just goes to show that you know there's some weird shit that goes on in war, man, and that's not the first time. And there's there's other times I'd be going down this trail or that trail or moving, you know, moving to contact, and I you know, I'd get like these intuitions about like, don't do that, that's bad. Go this way, go that way, and every time it turned out to be right. And, and so, you know, divine intervention came into play in that one. 
Fuck yeah, brother. I know exactly what you're talking about. Who, if you can recall, who was your 18D at that time? Brian Thurmond. <laughs> Trip Thurmond, yeah. dude. I just talked to him uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> and, dude, I mean, and he was in the vehicle with Davey when it got hit. So imagine getting rocked, getting your socks rocked with, like, a, a major explosion in the vehicle. And he had the cognizance to get out, pull Davey out of the vehicle, turn the kids on his legs, you know, treating him for shock. You know, make sure you had an hour away, you know, stopping the bleeding and uh, get him packaged up, ready to move. I mean, that I don't know if he got an award out of it, but he should have because he definitely saved Davey's life that night. Yeah, he's actually a really good dude to uh, bring onto our show as well. I lived with Brian, uh, with Carlos Aquino uh, in 2000. Yeah. In 2004, <laughs> I know. I know Patrick knows Carlos as well because they, they yeah. spent time together. So the special yeah. operations communities are so small, uh, especially with the especially. I mean, it's in the, all the specialties. It's like all the snipers know each other, all the medical guys. Yeah. So that's the thing. As I, I spent yeah. my entire time basically as a trauma guy, so I know tons of those dudes. And yeah, it sucks. That's you like this guy, man. He's a sweetheart, Southern boy. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, he, he, he was definitely uh, he, he was a, he was a step above us. You know, when we we yeah. into our 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 piracy of liberty liberty operations or yeah. whatever, he was just he he wasn't into it. He's like, okay, yeah, you guys are stupid, and I'm gonna go read a book. Yes, he's the nicest, yeah. level headed. He's an old soul. So yeah, he is. you get back, you know, this is uh, you said this was 05, right? I. Was that 05? No, that was 07. That was 07. 07. Okay. Yeah. And you're still, you're with uh, with First Recon at that time. And yeah. This is during so, my two-year hiatus. So when in uh, – so walk us through, dude. I mean, walk us through what's up. So you've been in at this point. You've been in about five years. I was mm-hmm. out for two years at this time. I had a two-year hiatus, um, and I don't meet you until 07. So – Walk us on yeah. to tell us about the little yellow birdie whispering Marsock in your ear. When did you first start hearing about Marsock, man? I got a quick question. So was that did so initially you did four years, correct? So you've you've reenlisted at this point already? Or did you do yeah. six years? Okay. No, so no, you re enlisted. Yeah, mm-hmm. So you got another you're in your next four years and Yep. So I I re enlisted and uh yeah, and you know, I well the way the reenlistment went was Josh Negron was a good friend of mine. He basically told me when we were going for recon, because I was ready to get out of Marine Corps. He said, look, you owe it to yourself to try out for recon. We're going to train for it. And, but if you make it, you got to reenlist. And by the time I went through all the hardships it took to make it to recon, I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to reenlist. I didn't just go through getting the shit kicked out of me. For yeah. Six the training phase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to not reenlist. So, so I reenlisted before I went to recon and then, uh, then I went to Mar, uh, Marsoc. So originally I heard I was going to Delta company, uh, which Delta company at the time at recon was, uh, when Marsoc stood up, they basically, they, they took all the old force guys into Marsoc to be its inception force. Like the guy, you know, you got to stand up a unit with actual bodies. So they took all these senior force guys over to Marsoc and they left like a contingent of force to be, you know, still, at, in the Marine Corps control, right? Force recon is, 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 a, is, a, is a MEF asset and battalion recon is, is a division asset. So the, the, the MEF still needed to have their force recon 
company to go out on a muse and that's uh, marine expeditionary units and that sort of thing. So, so Delta Company was the force unit. So when I heard I was going to Delta Company, I thought I was just going to, over the force. So I really paid it no mind. And I was I was walking around one day, just like you know, just going about, about my daily business at the battalion. And I remember seeing that there's an old this old guy that everyone knows who's in the community, uh, Mo Powell. He's like a legend. Yeah. And he came up to me and he's like, "Hey, Jacqueline, yeah, hey, you're, yeah, you know, you're coming to Marsoc, man. You're coming under my me, right?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, like I heard I was going to Delta Company. He's like, "Delta Company, fucking Marsoc, bitch!" Like I was like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, like, you're supposed to be checking in next week." And I went, "Oh, fuck! I guess I better check out." So I, you know, I, I, I so I, I, I just hit, I, I hit the rapid button and, and and checked out in a hurry, and I went over to Marsoc. And I remember when I came over to Barsoc, I was like, I was like, you know, like I had I had combat under my belt, like I, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I'd done some, I'd been around a little bit, and I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm coming over here, and I've been a, a team leader for deployment, and you know, about 07 deployment, I was a team leader. Before that, I was an assistant team leader, and then I picked up the the team halfway through the deployment. My team leader had to go home, so I, I had leadership experience in a recon team, and I was like, yeah, this is gonna be great, man. I'm going to Barsoc, but I, you know, I, I better have my shit together. So I show up, two-time recon, like ATL team leader type, and it was like being a boot all over again. I was like, hey, yes, guys, fuck you, yeah, Marsoc. And they're like, hey, boot, fucking take the trash out. Shut the fuck up. Don't speak unless talk to. And I was like, oh. I was like, oh. I was all bummed out. I was like, this, man, God damn it. You know, here I am going through this, going through being a new guy all over again. But so were you a, a, cor- a corporal at this time? No, I was a sergeant. I was a sergeant when sergeant? I came to Marsoc. Okay. Yeah. So I so came to Mars. What, what exactly was that? Uh, that was December of 07. Okay. So, so you got there five, almost six months after I did. I got there in July of 07 yeah. uh, with Blasey and Jake's and those boys. So we were there when we were still down the hill talking to the old forest building and not doing a bunch, not, not doing much at all. So, no, we we were pre- we were we were uh, delightfully unrefined in those days. I mean, I mean, for those <laughs> out there who are listening, who are listening to this, I mean, we had we had two platoons in our company in Delta Company. Right? Uh, we had Jesus. two platoons or two teams, as we called them, and we each had a trailer, or maybe we were sharing like a like a double wide or single wide trailer. No, we, we each had a trailer. No. Team wise, we, we definitely shared the same the same trailer. Yeah. And you wanna, this would be interesting. So hey, do you guys want to break down kind of the team structure a little bit for you know, we got a lot of people listening that obviously have never heard of anything like this and know how it's set up. Do you guys want to break down the team structure and how that would work for a platoon? That that's a good point, dude, because as Jacqueline and I will talk about here. We were a hybrid of old school and new school, and then officially transitioned to what it is now. So, Jacqueline, you and I were there at the exact same time. Jacqueline and I were actually at the same unit. We were in Delta Company together. I was yeah. a different team. And I was in the, at that time. I won't hold that against you, though. Yeah. Uh, at, <laughs> at, at that time, it was DA and SR. And I was with Mendenhall and the SR, the Greenside Boys, the patroller. Oh. Basically, long reconnaissance, deep reconnaissance, and then the DA boys, this big motherfucker here, kicked the doors in. Like heavy, they're heavy on the CQB. We were more SR on the outside, so that's was an old force lineage tie there, 
and they were still on the fence of deciding how to really map out the the, the teamwork, the framework of Marsoc. So that first year in 07, Delta Company was was non-existent. It was Alpha Bravo Charlie. And then on the East Coast, you had golf and hotel and potentially India or whatever the fuck it was on the East Coast second. So at first, though, Delta wasn't a thing until Brian and I and the others first stood up the first Delta Company, Plank Owners Delta Company. So he's in DA. I'm in SR. Continue, bro. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. So I was on the goon squad, and uh, yeah, I, I, I I fit in well, right? So yeah, I remember uh, old Grumpy Grumpy K, old Steve Steve Kruger. Steve, Steve was, Kruger. Yeah, he was he was our uh, he was our team chief, and I still remember him to this day. Like I, you know, I was a bit outspoken, and I uh, and I'd always have an idea about how we could do something better. And he always be like, Jacqueline, shut the fuck up and get the fuck out of my office. I don't care. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, oh man, all right. You're like, I'm, I'm sad. Yeah, yeah, like, no, come on, come on, come on, Johnny. Like, you know, it's a good idea. He's like, I don't care. Get the fuck out of here. You know, your opinion, you're new. Your opinion doesn't mean shit. But I will say also, you know, misconception. Everyone thinks like, you know, special forces. I mean, they're all like in top tier shape. And and don't get me wrong, like a lot of them are right. A lot a lot of guys, you know, strive to be in the best physical condition possible. Hundred percent. I was always on the slower side of running, you know. So you know, I could run like three miles at the time. I think I was running three miles, like between nineteen and twenty minutes, you know. Which for two hundred a two hundred forty pound, like yeah, I was gonna say you're exactly a tiny dude. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that was by Marine Corps standards, it's pretty friggin' fast. But by recon standards, I was slow as shit, you know. And and everyone else let me know it. So I was I was really concerned about that when I came to Marshall. I was like, man, I better like pick up my run time here because you know. These guys are going to eat me alive. I don't want to like show my ass. And uh, I remember we, we had a PFT and we, we, ran, we ran that PFT. I came in like fifth out of the company. I was like, holy shit, I'm going to do really great here. This is this is awesome. Was that, over, was that over at Lake O'Neill? No, it was, at, it, was at, it was at Flores when we did that. And I think it was like you and Blasi and Morales yeah. and a couple yeah. of us. Like, you, you, you guys finished in front of us. But then, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but then it was like all, all the old timers came in behind us, you know. They're like, "Yeah, man. I mean, look, like, I got to run from the helicopter to the house, house to the helicopter, you know. Like, they, they weren't too concerned with like, like three miles in your PT gear doesn't mean shit. And like, how fast can you run with all your kit, your kit on? And can you do it for extended periods of time? Like that was like move, move with weight for long distances. That was the name of the game. So, but you know, I, I really learned a lot. Really when I came to Marsoc about, you know, professionalism, because it's in special operations command, there's, there's just so many other aspects that you have to know. You, it's not just being a shooter, you know, kicking doors and, and doing tactical stuff. You need to know about the operational level, which is like, you know, the, the higher intent of your, your command. And you have to know about the strategic level, you know, like what's the higher intent of like the U S national policy and anything you do affects all of it. So at the tactical level, Joe shithead here going out and getting into bar fight and getting arrested will cause an enterprise wide investigation about our policies and our procedures and how we, you know, how they're interpreted. So it really, it forced us to grow up fast. It forced me to grow up fast anyways. And yeah, it, it was, it was a good learning experience for me. And I got to say, man, like that first platoon, I went into Marsoc, I mean, 
these guys were like senior force recon operators, been been there, been doing the job for twelve plus years, most of them. And so I, I, I was, you know, I considered I was in the presence of giants. So you know, when they say jump, I said how high? And what, you know, when you need something done, like yeah, when by to what level, and you know what what else you need done on top of that. You know, it was it was very much that that. You know, I was in a support role, and I knew my role, and I was a new guy, and I did I did my fucking bit because it's what was necessary, was as well was required. Those those were very very special times, and that's why I'm honored to have someone else because the memories seem almost so long ago, almost to the point where potentially like they almost didn't happen. So it's nice to have someone that was for me individually that was there at the same time that I was to. To be a part of this, I mean, if you look at the special operations community as a whole, nationally at every branch, most of these units stood up decades ago. I'm not talking like 1940s and 50s. Like RSOC is definitely built on the backbones and the skin and the blood of recon Marines. And even before that, Marine Raiders. But this unit is brand new. It stood up in 2000, October of 2006 officially. And Det One, which was the first test platoon, two Marsoc stood up in I'd say in October of 2004 on my deployment actually to Fallujah. Uh, I remember Doc Bryan, Timmy Bryan, Steve Kruger was their first platoon. They were rolling around on fucking Army strikers. So Jacqueline and I here are so blessed and so lucky to be the first of the first in a brand new American Special Forces unit in the height of a war. Yeah. You know, so like, yeah. holy fuck, man. So like the dudes, every swing and dick that was there at that time was a part of something that was so monumental to Marine Corps history. And we won't respect and recognize this until even years from now. I do now, but like it's been, you know, it's been, we're coming up almost in fucking, you know, 20 years. So yeah, it's fucking crazy, you know? <laughs> And, and, you know, there's a lot of growing pains, too, man. I mean, just like figuring out the way, the best way to structure the teams. And to your question earlier, for those out there listening, you know, the way a MARSOC team is set up <clears throat> is to be a fully capable team of independent operations. So most special forces, let's say an, an Army ODA maybe, you know, has like 12 guys. <clears throat> and then it has, you know, attachments that <clears throat> they come from its uh, – associated shops like you know your communications guy your your different intel disciplines and your eod and so on you know marsoc we strive to set ourselves up where we're fully independent and capable of doing the mission so you have a team commander and a team chief which is basically like your your platoon commander and your platoon sergeant uh and then you have two teams within each team you two elements within each team you have an element leader you have five, and you have four operators underneath that element leader. You are, you have an assistant element leader, and you have three basically, you know, gray meatballs that go in and do whatever they need to do. And then you have a, a special, a Sargus, a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman, and they all go through the 18 Delta course that's within the special operations community. They go out to brag for their qualifications. So they're, uh, so you have a leader. And you have five guys, and one of those guys is the medics. You have two six-man elements, if you will, and then a, a team leader and a team com- uh, team sergeant 
and charge those guys, or we call it a team chief because, you know, we're Navy, right? You know, Marine Corps is a, a branch of the Navy. So, uh, and then on top of that, you know, then it, within the, the entire team, then well, as you're forming up about, I think it's like six months into your deployment, into your pre-deployment workups, you get your drop of all your guys who are going to be supporting you. So you get your EOD tech, you get your, your joint terminal attack controller, you get your human intelligence specialist, you get your communicators and, you know, so on and so forth, your motor T-tech and everything else. So it ends up uh, back in those days, it ended up being about 20 guys fully enabled to deploy overseas. And I know that's so Justin now, but the other thing to consider is that, uh, let's see, TBI is kicking in again. So at, at the time, awesome. I, I got a question for you. So at the time yeah. were like, the Intel guys, the human, you know, the O2s, the the dog handlers, the comms guys, all that. Were they all permanently already assigned to MARSOC and they just were like, hey, this is the team you're going out with? Or were they like bringing dudes in TAD at the time? Because I know right now, right, the guys are all, they're basically assigned there. They're, you know, a three-year tour or whatever at yeah. MARSOC. Were they doing that at the time or were they like TAD stuff? At, at the time... Uh, we had attachment. The, the only attachments I remember that were like from outside were the dog handlers. So, like since then, Marsoc's done a, a great job in standing up uh, dog the canine programs. Yep, and we have we have fantastic dog handlers. But I believe, as I remember, at at that time, we didn't have dedicated dog handlers. So we, we had we had attachments that came from wherever. And I remember we had we had a dog handler on my first deployment with Marsoc. I was at we were stationed at Camp uh, Fop Robinson in Helmut Valley, and <laughs> they gave us a dog handler, and I can't remember his name. He was a good kid, man. He just wasn't up to task with the kind of shit we were getting into. So we went in, we got into like a crazy firefight within, you know, a couple of days of him being there, and, and it just it really popped his cherry to the point where, you know, the next time we're, we're doing a routine, you know, movement in our vehicles. And he's sitting on top of the vehicle, just like petting his dog, like staring, you know, thousand yard stare. And I remember asking, I was like, "Hey, his name was Josh." I was like, "Hey, Josh, you you all right, man?" He's just, and he just kept staring and petting his dog. And I, I had to go to the team chief. I was like, "Hey, uh, not for nothing, man, but Josh ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> we need to, we need to." We so need was to he? Was he a Marine MP? No, he was. He was an Army MP. Uh, Army shit. Yeah. yeah. But but you know, and I'm not and I'm not detracting. I'm not saying the army ain't great, and I'm not saying their dog handlers suck. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that you know, you know, when you try to assign conventional forces to a special operations unit, uh, sometimes they do well, and sometimes they don't do well. And it's, you know, sometimes they're just they're outside their depth, man. And uh, but you know, as a professional, you need to realize, you know, keep an account of what's going on around you. And make that assessment, like, hey, this guy's really having a hard time, and I don't want to put him in a position where he's outside of his depth, and I don't want to, you know, because that compromises the integrity of our operations. And, yep. uh, yeah, it's sometimes it's hard with guys that are attachments, you know, that that didn't. I mean, that's that's, and and you guys all know that's why there's all that screening process, and there's the the. You know, you, you go through recon, you go through all your your screening process to get to where you're at so they can vet you for that. And I, I literally had a very similar – we had an Air Force dog handler that was with us when I was in, in Afghanistan and Spin Boldak, and 
we ended up having to get rid of that guy because same sort of thing. He was just like a nervous wreck and you know, you're just like, well, these dudes are not vetted. They're not, you know, it's, it sucks because it's the dog handler thing is such a specialty. You need them. And at the time these dudes were not ramped up and trained for that. And you got what you got in it. Yeah. Shitty. It was a shitty, shitty deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we could get by without dog handlers. During those days, I mean, we weren't doing a lot of like precision work. We're doing more like, you know, sl- like a sledgehammer work. We're going in there. We're doing kinetic shaping operations and just, you know, our our our, our mission was attrition. You know, we were there to attrit the enemy and to set the conditions for follow on operational detachment alphas, green berets, ODA teams to come in and set set firm bases to uh, enhance security operations throughout the Helmut Valley. So, you know, a dog handler, you know, that's great. If they, if they work out and they can, you know, find bombs or whatever it was they were assigned to do with us. But at the end of the day, man, look, if you got, if you got, if you got a heads up mentality about the way you look at things at a critical way to critically analyze and, and take effective action, you're going to be fine. You know, and if you got a bunch of guys, you know, pipe hitting maniacs alongside of you, you know, it's like pirates on parade. Like we're out there to get shit done, and you know, dogs. Yeah, that that's great, but I don't need I don't need a dog. Like I just need my I need my my guy to my left, my right, and we're here to we're here to put in work, man. And that's what that's what we did. You're in Fabra. This is '09. Mm-hmm. I was in. Ross, so I was southwest of you, or actually due west of you, and our deployments were quite different. Not one was harder or better than the other, but Helmand was definitely quite different than Farah. Well, um, I will say, I'll say this, Jay. So I remember being so for you know when when I first got to Marsoc, the first order I ever got there came by way of Steve Kruger. He said. Take that piece of shit pickup truck out in the parking lot. Like someone had like abandoned a pickup truck and it became like de facto, like like the 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 first Marine Special Operations Battalion pickup truck. <laughs> it, 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 it was green. It was a green S10. I still remember it. it was, yeah, dude, I remember that. Yeah, it was a piece of shit pickup truck. So I take this pickup truck. He's like, "Go pick up your captain from DUI training." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> so. I go to the main side. I find the building for DUI training. Is this Peace? Is this Jamie Peace? This is Jamie Peace. So I I pull up and they're like releasing the class. I see this like captain with with dual cool like a you know he was dive qualified. He was a jump jump qualified. Handsome, handsome, pretty boy, motherfucker. One of the prettiest men I've ever met in my life. You know, and so he he comes out of he comes out of the DUI training. I, I I choose myself and he gets in the truck with me. And uh, I didn't really think of anything about it, but you know, later on, you kind of learn, and you, as you go up higher in, in the command bills, and like, you know, everything's looked at, right? So if you're in the command of, of somebody and you fuck up personally, it affects all of your men, it, you know. So they gave us the Helmet Valley mission because it was subservient to the ODA who was at Robinson. So we were in, we they had authority over us at Robinson, whereas Farah, you guys were on your own. And then control your own destiny. So under John Chavez, you guys run your own destiny out there. And Kruger, but, and Kruger was now my team chief. Yeah, yeah, you guys, you guys stole him from us, and that's okay because you guys, you know, you guys are in control of your own destiny. But I don't think that 
I don't think that any of the decision makers at Marsuk at the time realized the gravity of what was going on in the Helmut Valley. And, uh, I mean, we were out there. I mean, the place was a fucking meat grinder, man. I mean, we were out there yeah. every day just getting into all kinds of crazy ticks. And it, 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 was, it, it was great. It was a great place to really cut your teeth as an operator. Thanks for listening and check back next week for part two with Brian Jacklin and the guys from Savage Actual. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime... Find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.